Welcome to 7-Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. Sometimes it's just me, and other weeks I'm in conversation with another rabbi or a Jewish thought leader. All right, welcome everyone. Thank you for listening in. This week we are reading Chaye Sarah, which starts at the beginning of Genesis chapter 23 and goes through chapter 25, verse 18. So about two and a half chapters. This is the third of three parashiot about Abraham and Sarah. Two weeks ago at Lech Lecha, we met them and saw their journey from Mesopotamia to the land of Canaan. Last week, we saw the trials and tribulations of their life with regard to trying to have a child and pass on the legacy and pass on the covenant to the next generation. And this week, Chaye Sarah begins with these words. Vayihiyu Chaye Sarah, mea shana shana v'sheva shanim, shnei Chaye Sarah. The life of Sarah came to 127 years. These are the years of Sarah's life. The Hebrew words Chaye Sarah actually mean Sarah's life. But what's being described here is not really Sarah's life, but rather the immediate aftermath of Sarah's life. The Parsha begins by telling us that she lived to 127 and that she died. And what happens next, you won't be surprised, is that Abraham needs to bury her. So he goes about finding a burial plot for Sarah in the land of Israel, which will become the burial plot for the family. Most of the patriarchs and matriarchs end up being buried in this cave of Machpelah, which is in the area of Mamre or Hebron. And there is a holy site in that spot today, which is believed to be, or traditionally considered to be, the cave of the matriarchs and patriarchs. So first Abraham buries his wife, Then he goes about attending to the future. He realizes that his son Isaac will need a wife. And so Abraham sends his servant, who in this parsha, in this chapter, is unnamed, but in the tradition is understood to be Eliezer, who is kind of the chief servant of Abraham's household. He sends this servant back to Mesopotamia, back to the land where Abraham and Sarah came from and where their extended relatives still live, to find a wife for Isaac. Now, I can't do this chapter justice without really reading it in its entirety, which I won't do in this moment, but I'll describe briefly what happens. The servant goes back to Mesopotamia, back to Aram Naharaim, and he waits at a well and kind of cooks up a scheme to find the right woman, the right girl, to marry Isaac. A lot of biblical romances seem to begin at the well. It seems to have been where people met each other, which makes sense. So here's the plan that the servant makes to find the right wife for Isaac. This is chapter 24, verse 14. He says, "'Let the maiden to whom I say, "'Please lower your jar that I may drink,' and who replies, Drink, and I will also water your camels. Let her be the one whom you, God, have decreed for your servant, Isaac. In other words, when a young woman comes along to draw water for her household, which seems to have been a job given to girls in the household in those days, the servant is going to ask her to help him to get some water. 
And if she replies, sure, and I'll also give some for your camels, then she's the right person for Isaac. Then she's going to be the one that he betrothes to his master's son. And serendipitously, as soon as he's finished saying this, Rebecca comes along and does exactly that. Who is Rebecca? The Torah tells us, not for the first time, that Rebekah was born to Betuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. That's who shows up at the well. She's family. She's kin. This is exactly the right kind of person for Isaac to marry. And, of course, she does exactly what the servant had been hoping, which is to generously offer water, not only to him, but also to his camels. So the rest is history. The servant slaps a bracelet on Rebecca's wrists and he goes back to her family's house to negotiate a bride price. And at the end of the parsha, she goes back with him to meet Isaac, who will be her husband. And of course, she will grow up to be the matriarch of the Jewish people. So it's interesting. What we have here is in some ways a parsha that's very much about women and their contributions to the line of the patriarchs and matriarchs. It begins with Sarah and her death and Abraham's efforts to go about burying her, and it continues with the arrival of Rebekah on the scene and ultimately her marriage to Isaac. And we can see why these would be important stories. I mean, these are the stories of how the covenant gets passed on from generation to generation, the stories of how the Jewish people came to be. And these women play pivotal roles. Sarah is the mother of all Israel. And Rebekah, in the next parsha, will be the one who makes sure that her son Jacob will procure the blessing and the birthright so that the covenant can pass through him. These women are crucial to the story. They're crucial to the very existence of Israel, of the Jewish people. But one thing that we can be aware of, or that I'm aware of as I read this, is that we're not really reading their stories. We're reading stories about them, about Sarah and Rebecca, and later Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. But we're not really reading their stories. Which is to say, we're not seeing the stories from their point of view. Here's how Dr. Judith Plaskow puts it. I've quoted her before on this podcast. She's a longtime professor at Manhattan College and considered one of the important voices in Jewish feminist thought. And Dr. Plaskow writes in her book, Standing Again at Sinai, that, quote, the Jewish feminist faces all the same problems as any feminist trying to recover women's experience. Both her sources and the historians who have gone before her record male activities and male deeds in accounts ordered by male values. What we know of women's past are those things men considered it significant to remember, seen and interpreted through a value system that places men at the center." End quote. I think Dr. Plaskow's point applies directly here. Although it's hard to know exactly who our author is, it seems safe to assume that we're often, in the Torah, reading men's stories about these events in which women play pivotal roles, but in which women's voices are not heard. Now, I'm very much aware of the irony of me delivering this message through this podcast. As a man, I can't speak to women's experience. What I can do is to listen 
and to raise questions. And I think this Parsha raises all kinds of interesting questions that are worth asking about the experiences of the women that we're reading about. What was the end of Sarah's life like? What happened between her and Abraham after he almost sacrificed her only son? Did Rebecca choose to go with the servant? Was she on board? Was she excited to become the wife of Isaac? Was she nervous? What was she feeling? Did Rebecca love Isaac? The Torah tells us that Isaac loved Rebecca. Did she love him back? These are questions that we don't have the answers to. And of course, there may not be answers per se, since these are not historical accounts of historical people. There could be multiple answers to any one of these questions. And that's why the genre of Midrash is so important. Now, traditional Midrash is also written almost entirely by men, the men of the 3rd through 8th or 9th centuries CE, who tell us what they think the characters in the Torah were experiencing. But more and more, Midrash is coming to be written by modern people as well, men and women, people of all genders and all experiences, who wish to give voice to what they believe the experience of these important people in our stories may have been about. One of the most famous examples of this quote-unquote modern midrash is Anita Diamond's novel The Red Tent, in which she tells the story of not this Parsha, but what will happen a few weeks from now, which is to say what we think of as the story of Jacob and his wives, Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah, but she tells it from the point of view of the only named daughter, Dina. She describes Jacob's camp from a woman's perspective. This week I found a poem that does something similar for the Rebecca story. This is from the book The Torah, A Women's Commentary, which is put out by the Reform Movement, by the Women of Reform Judaism, and the URJ Press. And this poem is by Amy Blank. It's called Rebecca. This is a really interesting poem that casts the story of Rebecca, or at least the moment of Rebecca's departure to go off and marry Isaac, from her own perspective. And I asked my partner Nicole if she would read this poem for us. So here is Rebecca by Amy Blank. Rebecca, Amy Blank. I left home easily as when the ready seed drops from the tree, carefree, for I knew not what. I stuffed my toys into the saddlebag, braided my hair, and for that dusty journey wore my broidered gown. I chose my camel and set out light-hearted to enjoy adventure, scarcely a pang as tents and trees of home faded into wilderness. But this I wondered, how would it be fit to ask that awesome man, Abraham's servant, what manner was he to whom I was betrothed? Better to hold the question, I decided. Isaac, after all, was also kinsman. One more. Fabulous Abraham's son. And I, I would be his daughter. Daughter? Sister? Wife? Hardly a difference in my young mind. It's an interesting perspective, right? This is a Rebecca who's young, who doesn't fully know what she's in for, who's clearly not fully choosing this, and yet she is embracing it as an adventure. Maybe that is the experience that Rebecca or someone like Rebecca would have had in a moment like this. 
Maybe there's a different reading. In fact, I'm sure there are a thousand different ways to imagine Rebecca's experience as she goes off to meet Isaac. So I'm grateful to live in a moment in time and in an intellectual climate where we can look at our sacred texts and see both the voices that are there and the voices that are not there, and to understand our sacred obligation to read the text through those multiple lenses. That is, in fact, what the rabbis have been doing for generations upon generations. That's why Midrash even exists. And I'm glad that we, as modern readers, who have a different experience and a different voice to bring to the text, that we as modern readers can do so as well. So have a great week, everybody, and I'll look forward to studying with you again next week. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoy this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. To join one of our new weekly Torah study discussions on Zoom, go to micastreifer.com and click on Torah Study. 